victory. I was a child of Obama's presidency. If you look back through pictures of his inauguration, you'll see lots of optimistic young people holding back tears. I watched from home, but I was one of them. As a young person of color, 2008 made the world feel just a bit more open to me. When I saw who was running in 2016, I felt I had to work to defend the country I knew. November 8th was shattering, but I quickly felt a heightened sense of purpose. When CNN called Pennsylvania for Trump, a friend said to me, Wiley, you know a thousand politicians were just made. We started talking about how this was a crucial moment for us. I felt this immediate need to accept what had happened and to do something about it. It's clear the world just changed. I, I just felt so small. I mean, what do you do next? Welcome to This Way Forward. I'm Wiley Chang. In this podcast, a few friends and I share our stories of exploring what it means to come of age with Trump in office. From making sense of this moment to finding our place in it as young people, this is a look at some of the questions on our minds and maybe yours too. What does resistance actually look like in my life? How can we talk about people and not politics? How do I effectively share my voice? As young Americans, what's the way forward for us? Today being the inaugural day, since the election, almost every day I ask, is it really true? (laughs) And today it's clearly really true. That's the lifelong organizer, Heather Booth. She's been doing this a lot longer than we have, so we wanted to get her perspective. Is this truly unprecedented? I'm an organizer, and for... For 50 years, I've committed my life to helping empower people to find their voice and in finding it to try and build a better world. Heather grew up in Mississippi and, as a young woman, first started doing voter registration during the Civil Rights Movement. She's been organizing movements ever since, the women's movement, many labor struggles, and others. More recently, she was involved in advocating consumer protection measures in wake of the 2008 financial crisis. They said to me, Elizabeth, if you really want to push for this consumer agency, you got to get organized. And I said, great, how? They said, I've got two words for you, Heather Booth. That was Elizabeth Warren. In 2010, she turned to Heather to help pass the Dodd-Frank Act, the largest push for heightened financial regulation since the Great Depression. In making sense of this moment, Heather shared with us about what this moment means for her. In one way, there are always parallels from the past. Uh, You know, when Bush was elected, the first thing he tried to do was to privatize Social Security. He had a bus tour going around the country, and he was stopped as he met protest in state after state of seniors and young people. Many of the people on Social Security are children who've been orphaned or who are entitled to Social Security payments uh, from their parents. And 
stopping Social Security meant that Bush was stymied in his path for destruction. And by 2000, if that was 2004, in 2006, Democrats won back the House. And by 2008, Obama came in. And so the strong power that we now feel and is there with Trump and controlling both houses of Congress, because there is a way in which it does not serve the interests of the American people, as we've seen in history, this too will come to an end, but only if we organize. Beyond organizing for the greater good, how do we begin to even talk about politics? Real lives are at stake, yet it's still socially unacceptable to talk about politics in so many different places. Is now the time to change that? Is it time to embrace discomfort? As a speaker and kindness advocate, I want to create tools and conversations that equip people to be capably compassionate in a world that desperately needs more love. That was Houston Craft. Houston works full-time, speaking at schools and conferences across the country. I knew Houston in high school, where we worked together on leadership development. Like Heather, Houston's life's work is building communities in different ways. The main goal of his speaking is teaching students and educators how to build communities that train the skills of love and empathy. We need to be reminded more than we need to be taught. Our job as leaders isn't about the events we put on, the assemblies, the homecomings, the decorations. Our number one job as student leaders is to get better at loving people. But let me tell you, I'm glad you're agreeing via applause, but let me tell you, just because uh, we understand it doesn't mean we practice it. Houston has to be more diplomatic in his workplace than most of us ever will. He's a professional kindness advocate in mostly public schools. How does he navigate these schools and other spaces where he is largely expected to be positive and nonpartisan, yet still be true to his values? The day after the election, I was speaking at a middle school in California, and the, the, the middle school um, is in a community where you have a lot of affluent people surrounding the community, and then there's a lot of migrant workers, many of them you know, first-generation Americans, who also commute into the school. And so it's kind of this, you know, this melting pot of people. And I, I got a phone call the night before I went to go speak there. And the teacher said, hey, I'm really glad you're going to be here the next day because um, there were kids who were wearing like Make America Great hats at lunch. And they were chanting to some of the Hispanic students, um, build a wall, build a wall, build a wall. And. They're like, so really glad you're coming in to talk about kindness because it's needed. And, uh, and I got a chance to show up to a middle school of, you know, over a thousand kids the next day and talk about how, talk about taking a stand. Because some of us will feel the effects of the administration on our own lives. How do we engage the most immediate issues facing us? I have a, a close friend, someone who you just met recently um, named Kelty who has pre-existing conditions, who absolutely survives on the ACA. Um, her entire livelihood is dependent on it. And she is incredibly smart, incredibly passionate, incredibly service-oriented. And you take away her, her security, 
And her whole life becomes about survival instead of the potential gifts she could give to the world. So, you know, today I, I'm trying to enter into conversations. I'm trying to talk to people. I'm trying to call people and, and, and question this, which is like, I get it. If you think this doesn't work, that's great. But you got to tell me, you got to tell me what does work. You can't kick me out of my apartment building and tell me you're going to figure out a place for me to live six months from now. Like you need to give me a place to stay the next day. And I, I get so frustrated by this, that, you know, even in schools and schools, like we, we, I just posted about this today in schools, we have, we always tell kids, you got to show your work. And so you can't just arrive at like this th- theoretical solution without like showing you how you got there. And that's like what like, feels to me what's happening right now, which is like, hey, we're going to get rid of this thing because it's bad, but we're not going to tell you with like, And we say like, we have a solution, but like, we're not really going to tell you how we got there or what it is or how you're going to survive after it. What would it take for us to create a culture of talking about politics in a helpful and respectful way? My friend Claudia put it beautifully. She said that, at its best, politics is just about scaling as much goodness as we can for as many people as we can. Yeah, I think you're totally right that politics continue to be more and more taboo. You know, even this Thanksgiving, I know they're taboo in the past, but it's like this Thanksgiving, it was like, there's no politics allowed if you want families to stay together. And it's like, oh my goodness, what a... uh, a strange way to pre- prevent progress <laughs> is by like making, you know, something as important as politics taboo because you're totally right. I love that definition of it. It's like at its best, it's about scaling goodness for everyone. Politics is, is a, like, is ultimately about people. So we have to talk about it through the people lens, right? We have to humanize policies because policies suck, right? Like policies are boring and they're confusing and they're wordy and they're unclear and they're in, intentionally like recalcitrant, like this, they're hard to like to access. And so I think education's job is to be like, hey, okay, I know this is like complicated and confusing and maybe here's why they put in this language, but like, let's talk about like the impact that this has directly on people. No one has ever learned more about people by building walls, right? You don't listen very well through walls. You can't see people or understand people more deeply through walls. I do think we have to have new ways of listening to people, talking and listening, and then asking questions before we're even providing answers. So for example, there's a deep canvas that's been developed with some groups like Working America and other groups. And it's one of the ways that the um, marriage equality was won where people's views were changed. So a conversation might engage where after listening to someone in their views, then asking them, was there ever a time where you felt you were put out on the margins, where you weren't treated with respect, where you felt disrespected and fearful? And then just wait. And then many people will respond and say, yes, I remember that. I remember how it felt. I remember how harmful it was. And then engaging a conversation, once there's an emotional connection where people can see and understand what it means to feel abused and disrespected. And how then we can move on to create a society in which there is dignity and respect for all. 
there's probably debate around this, but I think another thing you can teach is courage. And that there are going to be things and people, as there have been throughout history, who make bold declarations that this or that thing is what we're going to do now that are inherently wrong. Like there's some things that are just inherently wrong, right? There's a reason why this civil rights movement blossomed. And it was because large, huge swaths of people were like, yeah, I know we say that this is what's going on, but it's wrong. And we're going to do something about it. And that requires courage and that requires understanding and that requires community and all the things that we've been talking about. Um, and so I think it's totally reasonable to, to talk with young people about like, Hey, you can, you can enter into these conversations. You need to listen. You need to have understand other people's sides. You need to have empathy. And I think that's, that's massive, right? Like for Democrats to understand why so many people you know, voted for Trump is a huge exercise in empathy and the the idea that because someone voted for x makes them dumb or stupid or wrong like that's that's garbage like that's not that's that is counterproductive always it's always counterproductive no one's ever told me just like you're wrong or stupid and i've been like oh yeah you're right good point like that never happens where i you know we need to teach that like the ability to have discourse simultaneously you know, throughout history, there have been these moments, these examples where it's like, well, someone's going to make a decision that we fundamentally disagree with because it, because it reduces human rights. You know, and if that happens, then, that I, you know, there's no, there's no tiptoeing or politeness about that. It's where well, you make a stand. There are three broad principles I think we need to keep in mind. One is we need unity, and by unity, it's all of us, that we're all in this together. Um, I sometimes call it the Spartacus moment. Uh, there's a story of Spartacus was a Greek who became a Roman slave and led a slave revolt, and the Romans come after Spartacus, and when they can't find him, they call out to the other slaves, saying there will be retribution, but tell us who is Spartacus. And one after another, the slaves respond and say, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus. And so we need to respond and say, I am Muslim, I am Union, I am a person who needs an abortion, I am an immigrant. We are all in this together. The second principle is that we need to show back to the American public that the lie that is behind what Trump is saying. Hold him accountable to what he said, that he is not operating in the interests of most people of this country, that he will not be bringing back jobs, that he will not be, tragically, he will not uh, provide jobs that pay people decent livings, especially when you've got someone head of Department of Labor who is against increasing the minimum wage, uh, someone in uh, health and safety standards who doesn't believe in increasing health and safety standards, who uh, someone in charge of finance who believes in letting the banks go free. So that we need to hold him accountable and expose what he's doing to the American public. The third is that we need to organize more deeply. 
both in areas where we've had strength before, particularly communities of color, to say that the concerns they have can be engaged to listen to their concerns, to find ways to address it and engage them directly. And the same is true for uh, communities in rural, exurban, and white working class areas. It's not an either or. We need to do both, but we need to organize. So it's unity, accountability, and organizing. And I think those are the three guiding principles that I feel need to direct a great deal of the work that we do while we resist and organize to win. If you love people and hate injustice like we do, follow our project. There's a long road ahead of us and we can take on early adulthood in this administration together. We'll continue to tell stories, highlighting young people and different perspectives on this moment and what we're doing moving forward. This Way Forward is created in collaboration with the Bowdoin Commons and is produced by Carly Berlin, Edward Lee, Ben Miller, Cam Trutavian, and me, Wiley Chang. Music was originally composed by Sam Kizavat, and a very special thanks to Yvonne Chan, Aisha Khan, Kate Berkeley, Jessamyn Anderson, and Katherine Sims.